0: We have been thinking these evenings about discernment. There are five New Testament references to discernment. And tonight, having already thought about discerning the truth and discerning the times, we come to another which logically follows, the discerning of spirits. One of the gifts of the Spirit is just that, 1 Corinthians 12.10, but we read also in first John four one, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The man who can discern the times is prepared to discern the spirits. John says many false pseudo prophets will arise, and our Lord said in Matthew twenty four that false prophets And false Christ shall arise and deceive many. I don't need to tell you that we're living in the worst period of deception in all history. We're living in a day when even in pulpits men deny the existence of angels and demons and the devil himself. And nothing pleases the devil more, for while God is the great I am, the devil is the great I am not, and is never happier than when we deny his existence. Men scoff at the idea of demons. We've never had so many demonized faces leering at us from the newspapers and the TV screens and even as we walk the streets. What we're seeing today is not ordinary meanness. We've always had that. These terrible crimes you read about, these frightful things that occur from day to day, this is not ordinary meanness. This is concentrated, double-distilled demonism. And Paul writes that we are wrestling against a world of darkness And as Phillips puts it, against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Now, that doesn't sound like fun to me. There isn't anything dainty about wrestling. Wrestling is the most strenuous of all the sports. It's not a graceful exercise of give and take. It's a groaning, grunting, straining of every muscle from start to finish And your shoulders are never more than a few inches from the mat. Paul believed that uh, he was contending with demonic hosts under the devil. And our Lord believed it too, from the temptation in the wilderness until the arrest in the garden when he said, This is your hour and the power of darkness. We'd better not underestimate our adversary. Teddy Roosevelt had a little old dog that was always getting into a fight and always getting licked. Somebody said, he's not much of a fighter, is he? And Teddy said, oh yeah, a good fighter, just a poor judge of dogs. (laughs) One reason we get licked today so often in spiritual combat is because we underestimate the foe. Satan is the master deceiver, and he's disguised as an angel of light and does more harm that way than ever he does as a roaring lion. He mixes the tares with the wheat so that only the angels can distinguish them. Shows up in jannies and jambries every time Moses performs a miracle. He uses so many tricks and confuses us like the driver ahead of us on the highway who makes a left turn on a right blinker. We've got a lot of preachers doing that today. You can't tell they're not going the same way that they're... uh, S- sermon sometimes would indicate. The devil specializes in simulation. A hypocrite is a play actor. The sin against the Holy Spirit lay in attributing the work of God to the devil. But we may be seeing today the work of the devil attributed to God. I'm more afraid of a false revival today than I am of no revival. A false gospel and false evangelists and false converts and false joy I'm more afraid of that than no revival at all. And we may see more of that that will seem so genuine that it will deceive, or would, the very elect. Many church leaders will endorse it, and other good folks will be afraid to oppose it for fear they might be fighting against God. The further we get from reality, the more we go into make-believe in the professing church. Drama always flourishes when spirituality is low. The lower the spirituality through the ages, the more dramatic we have. The churches will become glorified nightclubs where we worship the great God entertainment. How frantically we plunge around in all directions today, trying to popularize the gospel and fall on some new trick to try to tantalize a few whirlings out. The Ichabod Memorial Church, for instance, packs them in with a folk musical, and Pergamos puts on a TV celebrity. And Thyatira brings in some fellow who can play a fiddle and beat a drum and blow a harmonica all at the same time. And then at Sardis they say, we're not going to be outdone, so we'll have Aunt Dinah's quilting party. And everybody come dressed like you were a hundred years ago and we'll all see Nelly home. And then I heard of Laodicea that was not going to be outdone, so they had a talking horse there. Uh, he was trained all right. They asked him how many commandments, and he stomped ten times. How many disciples, and he stomped twelve times. And then some smart aleck asked how many hypocrites are there in this church, and he went into a dance on all four. <laughs> Instead of setting the pattern, every time some new fed comes along, the church comes tagging along after it. It's rather a nosy-eating performance. If it's so good, why are we riding the caboose instead of the cab? You don't have to put on modern attire and pick a guitar and stage uh, rock operas uh, in order to get the gospel across. You don't have to go to the Levins to find out what the hippies are thinking. You don't have to drink ginger ale at cocktail parties to find out what the country club crowds thinking. You don't, uh, it really doesn't make much difference what they think, because my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, says the Lord. What matters is what God is thinking and what God is trying to say today. And then, of course, in this nervous, jittery time, we're living on excitement, and it gets over into the church. Somebody asked old Bishop Candler a long time ago, do you think the holy rollers will get to heaven? He said, yeah, I think they will if they don't run past it. Uh, Some of them are in such a hurry these days that I worry about them. They're bouncing from one mountaintop experience to another and never coming down the valley to where the action, where the need are to be found. It's a time of subjectivism. Uh, When you make the Holy Spirit the figurehead of any movement, F.B. Meyer said a long time ago, then you're eccentric because the business of the Holy Spirit is to magnify and glorify Jesus and to testify of him. I know that a long time ago, back in the thirties in Charleston, how my own life was blessed by a book, The Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians, and how the Lord brought me to John 7, 39, with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. I've read the books, and you have too. We've been down through all of them, from Hannah Old Smith's. Uh, Christian secret of a happy life Trumbull victory in Christ Hudson Taylor's exchange life Watchman Knees normal Christian life and uh, Ruth Paxson's life on the highest plane McConkey and Meyer and Murray and now we've got Jack Taylor and thank the Lord for him I'm going out to be with Jack for a week or a little later on but beloved even these things and I'm for them but even these things can can become uh, sort of fed. The New Testament epistles do not major on special experiences. Somebody has said the greatest hindrance to real Christian experience is too many experiences. If you will think that one over, it might enlighten you a bit. Uh, some of the best Christians I've ever known hadn't read a book on the victorious Christian life. I think about my old daddy. He was just plain faithful. He traveled the old T and O. I used to ride the trains, the B and O and the C and O, but the greatest road in the world is a T and O, trust and obey. And father traveled that one. He was just plain faithful in the little old country church, building a fire in that little old stove on a cold winter morning, the first one to get there. Never missed a service. The preaching didn't have to be great. The weather didn't have to be good. He was there however he felt and whatever the weather, whether the weather be good or whether the weather be not, whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot, whatever the weather he weathered, the weather whether he liked it or not. (laughs) He was there all the time, just plain, ordinary, faithful. He didn't go around with a great big button or... That said, I'm a Christian carrying a Bible as big as us ears in a robot catalog. (laughs) Just a Christian. Just a plain Christian. It is a trick of the devil today to get a lot of extremism stirred up on the Holy Spirit to scare us away from the real thing. Don't you be scared away from the truth about the Holy Spirit because of any error. Don't be so scared you'll get out on a limb that you never get up the tree. There's a danger there. I know we have a lot of books now about the devil and about demonism, and I'm a little afraid of some of that because if you read too many of them, you want to look under the beds at night before you go to bed. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There are two extremes today. There's one crowd that says everything's all wrong, and they're wrong. No preacher's good enough. No church is good enough. Ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth always changing labels on an empty bottle. And then there are others who say everything's all right and that's wrong, too. Tolerant. They say, let's forgive communism, let's forgive everything. But uh, ex-Congressman Judd said a long time ago, Jesus forgave the penitent thief, but he didn't forgive the other one. And so there's a very sweet tolerance nowadays that thinks its mind is broadening when it's just its conscience stretching. My Lord said to the church, thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, Now suffer, that doesn't mean to hurt. It means you put up with that woman, you ought to get rid of it. We are judged today as much by what we tolerate as by what we practice. There are those who say we need liberals and fundamentalists, both in the church, but the same fountain cannot send forth both bitter water and sweet. We have room in our church for everybody. That's too much room. That's more room than the New Testament ever had. That's like saying, I'll drink the milk. There's a little strickening in it, but most of it's milk. Go ahead and drink it. They will not hurt you, any. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You start out tolerating the devil, and you'll soon endorse the devil. Everything's not all wrong. Don't get under the juniper like old Elijah, saying, Lord, all the good folks are gone but me, and I'm not feeling so well myself. (laughs) And then there are others who uh, need to remember that everything's not all right either, because my Lord said to some of the churches, I have this against thee. When have you ever asked yourself, Lord, what do you have against me? When has your church ever asked the Lord, what do you have against us? Jesus has something against some of us today. And only spiritual discernment can give us a balanced view in a time like this. I have only one I have only time to mention one facet of this tonight. Everywhere I go I'm hearing the question now are we having revival? You're hearing it too. There's a lot going on. Is this revival? Well, the question is its own answer to begin with, because it implies doubt and uncertainty. If we ever have a revival, we'll know it. A genuine work of God is always self-authenticating. It bears its own credentials, and it doesn't need a conference of experts to identify it if it ever comes along. If we were having a revival today, there would be a return to the authority of the Bible as the inerrant word of God. Some of the brethren who are battling for orthodoxy owed a major on calling the church to repentance because when the church repents, she forsakes her doubt and her liberalism and it doesn't have a leg to stand on. And what argument could not possibly accomplish comes naturally or supernaturally when men turn to God. The Great Welsh Revival, for instance, do you realize that it just about cured that country of liberalism as a sort of an indirect result? And it was said in one of the leading papers over there, the revival is largely a protest against the philosophic Christianity preached by the ministers whom Welsh university colleges have trained. The revival of 1904 released many a minister and others from the grip of wrong doctrine and checked the advance of various forms of religious heterodoxy. Beloved, orthodoxy itself needs a revival today. You can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. I've been through some of these upheavals in the past. Back in the 40s, I preached a lot among the American Baptist churches of the North and Midwest and the West, and I know what they went through. I remember Massey in... And of course, among the Presbyterians, McCartney and Machen and old Dr. Riley, who baptized my wife and who was a great friend to me in the ministry. Wonderful men they were, and the men took a stand, but the matter splintered and fragmented so much that they lost about all the ground that they had gained theologically by too many splits and divisions. And unless we return to sound doctrine, and along with it, have revival. If they don't go together, if Reformation is not accompanied by spiritual, heartwarming revival, you're going to have a cold fundamentalism, and nothing in this world is deader than dead orthodoxy. And The Pharisees illustrated that, and they drew the severest condemnation from our Lord of anything in all his ministry. If we had revival today, there would be profound conviction of sin and confession and forsaking of sin. God wouldn't be just the big buddy upstairs. Prodigals would be coming home saying, I have sinned, not merely rehabilitated by social programs. We wouldn't be building modernized hog pens out in the far country. We cannot expect God to take away sin by forgiving it, if we're not willing to put it away by forsaking it. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, whoso confesseth and forsaketh him shall have mercy. And there'll be no mercy and forgiveness until the wicked forsakes his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Now, if we were having revival today, the divorce rate would drop and houses would become homes and Marriage would be for life, and unwed college students wouldn't be living like man and wife in dormitories, and pornography and nudity and homosexuality and other abominations would not be accepted, and husband would be the head of the home and woman the heart of the home, and any home with two heads and no heart is a monstrosity. Discipline would be restored in the home and in the church from which it has disappeared almost entirely. If we were having real revival today, it would have its impact on lawlessness and crime. There's no king in Israel tonight, and every man does what's right in his own eyes. It is as though the highway department had thrown away all the signs and said, Everybody drive as you please. The criminal wouldn't be coddled and given a mere slap on the wrist by lenient courts. The streets would uh, no longer be unsafe for decent citizens because they're infested with these demonized denizens of darkness. And in such a time, capital punishment wouldn't uh, be frowned upon. I'm glad there's a reaction setting in because we've tried to annul what God ordained. A revival would do more for law and order than all the politicians running for office ever promised in their wildest oratory. There would be reconciliation and restitution among Christians. It doesn't take much religion to confess other people's sins. I heard of a woman who went to a psychiatrist. She had to strip a bacon over each ear and a fried egg on top of her head, and she said, "I've come to see you about my brother." I heard a woman say some years ago she was teacher of a ladies' Bible class for ten years before she ever got right with God. And then one time in an old Methodist meeting, she went to the mourner's bench, and she said, Lord, I'll go to India, I'll go to Africa, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. The Lord said, I don't want you in Africa, I don't want you in India, I want you to get right with Susie, right here in the church. She said, I hadn't thought about that said, I started over. Lord, I'll go to Africa. She said, I'd rather go gone to Africa than get right with Susie. And the Lord said, No, you gotta get right with Susie right here in the church. The next Sunday, who should come in and sit down beside her but Susie? And Susie said, I hear you got religion. She said, if I didn't have, I wouldn't be sitting with you here today. <laughs> and she got religion, and she got right. Now I know that you smile at that, but beloved. I believe that more revival, that revival is hindered more today, by things like that than by liberalism or worldliness. I know you're at Ben Lippin, but is there anybody you need to get right with? We would confess our faults one to another, and my Lord said, if you bring your gift to the altar, and remember that your brother is at odds with you. Hang on to your duplex envelope till you get right with your brother. That sure would ruin a lot of offerings in church on Sunday morning. But that's what he said. The church is rent with all the sins that Paul enumerated, envying, strife, division, swelling, whisperings, tumultisms, various debates, contentions, tattling and gossiping and backbiting, jealousy among the flock and God help us among the preachers. Husbands and wives, parents and children, neighbors and neighbors would get right with each other. Personality clashes would be cleared up on church staffs, sins of the tongue and the temper, and all these evils that beset our churches today. And old Zacchaeus would straighten out his crooked business practices, and there wouldn't be so many two-faced hypocrites devouring widows' houses and for a pretense making long prayers. If we had real revival today, there'd be a decline of worldliness in the church. One doesn't hear that word anymore. I know that I'm frightfully old-fashioned tonight. When have you heard worldliness? Now it's secularism. Nobody knows what that means, so that lets the preacher off the hook today. Just secularism. We used to preach, come out from among them and be ye separate. Today even the fundamentalists and the conservatives say, get in and get with it. Everything that's sounds like separation from the world is abhorred as though it were the bubonic plague. And the age droves to its close and babble and shapes up and the harlot rides the beast. And the world and the professing church have fallen in love with each other and the wedding approaches. There was a time when preachers thundered against specific sins. Now even church covenants no longer name any specific sins. They say that isn't it. Uh, right anyway so they just say all evil and that leaves everybody to interpret that to suit himself not uh, particularizing you see just generalizing when are we going to learn all over again that whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God I know it's not done merely by pulpit denunciation so much as by the expulsive power of a new affection but there is a place for pulpit denunciation although one doesn't hear much of it anymore When revival comes, however, the best way out of this problem, as with every other, is to fix our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, and worldliness and all the rest of it will grow strangely dim. If we had a real revival, there'd be an outbreak of original New Testament Christianity. We'd be saved from extremism in both directions. The trouble today is that we're living between rigor mortis and St. Vitus in the church today. We're freezing or frying, one of the two. On the one hand, the living faith of the dead has become the dead faith of the living. You have a Christless church entity on one side and a churchless Christianity on the other, where the hippies say they like Jesus, but they don't like the church. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. I've been a local church preacher all these years. It's a heartbreaking business many a time. People like to go to great crowds where they get lost in the multitude. But you stand week after week as I've done for 33 years on the road and most of 57 in the ministry. Stand in local churches where everybody knows everybody and name sins and call people to repentance. And you'll understand what Joseph Parker meant when he said a man who preaches repentance becomes the target of the enemy in a special way, and the only answer for him is off with his head. He said, don't preach repentance until you've pledged your head to heaven. And I know that from all of these years, there isn't any more thankless job on the face of the earth than calling local churches to repentance. And yet the real measure of revival is the local church with all its headaches and its heartaches plodding along the local church is the thermometer of what God is doing at any day, in any day and generation. If we had revival today, we'd be delivered from such popular aberrations as the notion that we must dress like the world and talk like the world and sing like the world in order to reach it for Christ. You don't have to look like a clown to witness to a circus. I was pastor in. Charleston for five years and I preached every Saturday night at an old rescue mission. I didn't dress like a bum to go down there. Even the bums wouldn't have appreciated that. The language of the gospel doesn't have to be degraded into the jargon of this world. Why, even the hippies resent such pitiful procedure. The obsession today that Isaac Watts doesn't speak the lingo of today, the idiom of this generation, so we must switch from hymns to hootenannies, forgetting that our young people, it is an insult to the intelligence of this young generation to say that one of the greatest hymns in your book, Jesus and Shall It Ever Be, was written by a 10-year-old. Young people are perfectly capable under the Holy Spirit of appreciating the great magnificent hymns of the past. You don't tell the kids that uh, the, the idiom of Shakespeare is out of date. They're still studying Shakespeare in college. The terminology of the legal or the medical professions patients hasn't been dragged down to the level of this, uh, the jargon of the streets. A real vision from God will make us red with embarrassment one of these days. Uh, My dear friend Dunlap is an admirer of A.W. Tozer, and so am I. Tozer's been here in the past. He's with the Lord now. A.W. Tozer was a prophet. He said, The present flair for religion has not made people heavenly-minded. It has secularized religion and put its approval on the carnal values of men. It glorifies success and eagerly prints religious testimonials from big corporation tycoons, actors, athletes, politicians, and very important persons of every kind regardless of their reputation or lack of one. Religion is promoted by the same techniques used to sell cigarettes. You pray to soothe your nerves just as you smoke to regain your composure after a sharp business transaction or a tight athletic contest. Books are written by the scores to show that Jesus is a regular fellow and Christianity a wise use of the highest psychological laws. All the holy principles of the Sermon on the Mount are present in reverse. Not the meek are blessed, but the self-important. Not they that mourn, but they that smile and smile and smile. Not the poor in spirit or gear at God, but they who are accounted somebody but the secular press. Not they that hunger and thirst after righteousness are filled, but they that hunger for publicity. That's a note you don't hear a great deal today. If this were revival, there'd be a recovery of modesty in dress and deportment. The scriptures are both explicit and implicit. It's both, both in the New Testament. Christians ought to be different in appearance and set a standard for a sex-crazy generation. I know that people say, well, what matters is not sex. Uh, what you wear but your heart. Yes, friend, but they don't see your heart. They see you. If we ever have another revival, I think hairlines will go up and hemlines down. I didn't expect many amens on that part of the sermon. There's no evidence of freakishness in the appearance of Jesus. He set no weird standards in haberdashery or haircuts. If this were that, Christians would attract no special attention either way as doodish or dowdy. Paul wrote to Timothy and warned him about three trends. You measure a thing today, beloved, not by what it is in itself, but by which way is it going and where I go if I go with it? Now, the next time you young folks face some of these questionable things, always ask that, not what it is right now, I have question-and-answer periods with young folks, and I have a better response with them than I've ever had in all these years. But they always ask the same questions. What about rock and roll? What about dancing and so on? And the trouble is that so many are really asking, how much like the world can I be and still be a Christian? Why don't we ask how much like the Lord can I be and how little like the world? Why do we ask how near to the precipice can I go without going over it? Paul warned Timothy about things and about the times and about the truth. He said, watch the perils of all three. And each time he turned from that trend by saying, but as for you, don't you be carried away with that sort of thing. If we were having revival today, the sanctity of the Lord's day would be restored. It used to be the Lord's day, now it's the weekend. And now with these long holiday weekends and four-day work weeks, God's old arrangement in for trouble. My crowd, my denomination, some time ago in Kansas City, put together a new statement of their faith. I don't think most of them know what it is. But uh, with regard to the Lord's Day, it says, We are to refrain from all secular employment, works of necessity and works of mercy being accepted. Now, Sunday football would hardly qualify as a work of necessity and certainly not a work of mercy, but I don't hear anybody saying anything about that. There was a time, beloved, when voices sounded out against these things, when old Spurgeon said many would unite church and stage cards and prayer, dancing and sacraments. If we are powerless to stem this torrent, we can at least warn men of its existence and entreat them to stay out of it. And A.J. Gordon, that colossus of Boston, who, as I said last night, took that old ivy-clad, moss-covered, closed corporation of a church and turned it into a powerhouse, for God said, The notion having grown that we must entertain men in order to win them to Christ, every invention of world-pleasing which human ingenuity can devise has been brought forward till the churches have been turned into playhouses, what would he say now, do you think? And there's hardly a carnal amusement that can be named from billiards to dancing which does not find a nesting place in Christian sanctuaries to sound the note of alarm. Is it then Phariseism or pessimism? I get this. This is written a long time ago. Is it Phariseism or pessimism to sound the note of alarm or to predict that at the present fearful rate of progress, the close of this decade may see the Protestant Church as completely assimilated to 19th century secularism as the Roman Catholic Church was assimilated to 4th century paganism. I know that sounds dreadfully old-fashioned, but there aren't many A.J. Gordons either, If we had revival today, it would make a mighty impact on entrenched evil. There was a time when the church fought the liquor business. And today, kind words are said for the cocktail set. And about the only reason I ever hear for teetotalism is the uh, offending the weaker brother. That's not the reason why I don't drink it. I don't even need a Bible these days to leave liquor alone. Friend, if you've had any, you've had too much. Plain common sense ought to keep a man from touching anything that dangerous to body and mind and family and other people. That built-in risk is too great. And so it goes. And I know that not many people are saying anything about this anymore, and I don't have long left to say it. And the devil told me a long time ago, if I started preaching like this, I'd starve to death. And from the way I look, you may think the devil is right. <laughs> but I'm not. And I'm carrying on today in, under extreme difficulty, but Somebody ought to be saying a few things today that is not being said much. And I've been in conservative circles a long time. And I'm a bit concerned about this tolerance that has crept over us, which we mistake sometimes for Christian charity. And the greatest need among all of us today is revival. I've almost despaired of most of our church people ever learning the difference between revival and evangelism. Every time we have a revival in this part, of the week of meetings in this part of the country, we call it a revival. Most of them are a thousand miles from a revival. Evangelism is the preaching of the gospel to win the lost. Revival is the work of the Spirit of God among his own people. I don't see much revival. All the wonderful things in the Acts of the Apostles, all of them were simply the outflow and the overflow of the inflow of the Spirit of God. That's all. But I remember when I was a boy, my daddy used to take me out in the country to an old mill that was run by a water wheel. And the water poured over the wheel, and the wheel turned the mill. Now suppose some morning the miller would come down there and there wasn't enough water to turn the wheel. How foolish he'd be to get down there and try to make the wheel go around. How foolish to call in the neighbors and try to make the wheel go around. But I know what he said do. He could go up the creek and clear out the debris and deepen the channel. And then the water would flow. And the wheels would turn and he'd be back in business. Everywhere I go today, I meet pastors and educational men, music men, Sunday school superintendents, puffing and blowing and red in the face trying to make the wheels go around. They're not going right much. And they don't want to go up the creek and get right with God. Uh, let me ask you tonight. I know you're good folks, but uh, when I point my finger at you, I point my thumb at myself, and let's all get in on it this moment. Do you need to go up the creek? Is there anything between you and God and between you and somebody, no matter whose fault it is, that you need to try to clear up? Be surprised how many people can come to good Bible conferences who haven't been up the creek in a long time. Know how Isaiah prayed, Wilt thou not rend the heavens and come down? And he said, Lord, you're not coming down. Because of our sinfulness we have sinned. Because of our self-righteousness, which is a filthy rag. And because of our sluggishness, because there's none that stirreth up himself to take hold of God. What's your trouble tonight? Is it your sinfulness? Is it your self-righteousness? Is it your sluggishness to stir up yourself, whether you feel like it or not, to take hold of God? And as you follow this meeting with a prayer meeting, uh, you can't give an invitation for this kind of a sermon. You don't settle this by walking down an aisle but alone somewhere around on these mountains in your room, uh, do you need to go up the creek, as it were, and clear the channel between you and your God? Or do you need to call up somebody or write a letter to somebody or go see somebody to clear the channel that, and so that the Holy Spirit can move in and there will be the inflow and the outflow and the overflow of the Spirit of God? We don't need anything today half so much as a checkup with the Almighty. I've been through Mayo Clinic twice for checkups, and I've sat there in that great diagnostic building and seen people from all over the world card in hand waiting, and I've wondered how many of them have ever been to Jesus for a checkup. How long's it been since you've had one? The procedure's the same. You must have a sense of need. You must have confidence in the doctor. You must submit to the examination. You must accept the diagnosis, and you must take the treatment. But Laodicea didn't need anything. Even God can't do much for a person who doesn't need anything. May create in our hearts tonight a desire to be the type of Christian that will know what it is to have the inflow, the outflow, and the overflow of the Spirit. He that drinketh of this water from within him to flow rivers of living water. Are you sure that you don't need to go up the tree tonight?